Um, some of you might remember the name Manti Teo. And apparently this is a Netflix documentary right now. But Manti Teo was this rising Notre Dame football player who was actually up for the Heisman Trophy Award. And as he was up for the Heisman Trophy Award, getting some more notoriety, he kept pointing to the fact that he was absolutely in love with this girl named Lene, who he had never actually met, but had only met her through online, through Facebook, and he was in this deep relationship with her, and he talked about this incredible love that they had for one another. And as he was up for this Heisman Trophy Award, talking about his relationship with this girl he never met, he also talked about how she was actually battling cancer, asking people to pray for her and to, to think about them as he was on this journey. And then right before he's getting ready to be drafted into the NFL, uh, Manti Teo let people know that this girlfriend that he had dated for two years just online had actually died of cancer. And so this story gained national media attention as people were just heartbroken for this rising football player who was in this relationship with this girl that he never met. And they were heartbroken that this incredible love of Manti Teo and Lene would never actually happen. It was a modern day love tragedy. There was only one problem with the story is that Lene was never real. In fact, it was a hoax. It turns out that Manti was talking to somebody who wasn't Lene. In fact, it was some guy actually trying to trick him and even deceive him. And it came out that he had met this girl online for two years, never met her face to face, but he was actually being deceived by some dude pretending to be this girl named Lene. And this rising football star whose story was being celebrated now became questions of, man, are you even sane? Like, how, how well do you really know somebody if you've never actually met them face to face? Causing questions of his sanity, questions of his mental stability, and really asking the question, how well can you really know someone if you've never actually seen them? How well can you really know someone if they actually have deceived you like this? Church, today we're beginning a brand new series. And look, in this series, we're going to be talking about the gospel-shaped church. And one of the questions I want to ask you is, how well do you really know the church? How well do you really know what we're called to do and what God has asked us to do and what the church could be and what the church should be? And look, we don't want to catfish you or trick you. We want to be upfront with who we are as a church. In fact, there's this growing sentiment right now. It seems that people are saying, you know, you know what, I don't really need the church or the church doesn't meet all of my preferences. Do I really even need to go? And sometimes those thoughts arise from not really knowing how the church is shaped or what it's actually meant to be and how this local body of Jesus followers is to actually function. And sometimes people don't even realize, or maybe they've never been taught that church isn't just an option. In fact, it is essential. It is essential for people to grow closer to Jesus, and I believe it's even essential for local communities. As we get ready to go into the fall, we're going to look at the shape of the church and really get to know the church some more and see that what the church is all about is not based on our preferences, but hopefully see that the mission is way greater than our preferences. 
Um, some of you know that at Coastal here, typically over the summer, we'll go through an entire book of the Bible. And we just finished First John. Um, but this summer, you actually get two full journeys through the book of, a, of, a, of the Bible. And we're going to be going through the book of Titus over the next four weeks. In fact, go ahead and turn in your Bible, digital or analog, to Titus chapter 1. And as you're turning there, again, I want to ask you the question, how well do you know the church? You know, Titus was actually written about 62 AD to a young pastor who was leading some churches in this region called Crete. And Crete was the largest of the Greek islands. And Paul commissioned Titus to go and build healthy churches in a region that was full of Gentiles and Greeks. And a lot of the religion and the culture were complete opposite of Christianity. But see, Paul was confident in Titus's understanding of the gospel and the way that he should build healthy churches in the middle of a culture that was not. Paul would challenge the church to stand on what is godly, to love in a way that honors their God and Savior, and to live lives that are really selfless and really show courtesy to one another and living and loving one another with this loving kindness, this same loving kindness that God has given us. Man, Titus showcases and highlights what a gospel-shaped church should look like in doctrine, in leadership, and in real-life living. So today, this message, and really this whole series, is for those of you who have been coming to this church for a while. And I'm hoping that you'll see that the Big C Church and even the Little C Church, these local body of believers, look, it's not to be built on someone's platform or personality or programs or prominence, but instead should be based on the gospel and the truth of the word of God. And if you've been looking for a church, or maybe if you don't yet even have a relationship with Jesus, and maybe you're wondering, why in the world am I even here today? Man, I'm hoping you'll see that when it comes to coming to church, it isn't just about the coolness of a church or how cool the pastor's shirts are, but it's about so much more than that. You need to look a little bit closer and see what that church is built upon and see what that church is actually producing. So no matter where you are on that spectrum, again, I want to ask you, how well do you know the church? And today I want to share with you three checks that help us see and check the shape of the church. So I'm going to give you three checks to check the shape of the church. And I'm going to give you two questions around each one of those checks, okay? All right, so you guys ready to get into it? All right, if you're ready, say amen. And just so you know as well, church, so you know, I don't mind, like, if you hear something good, if you say amen, if you talk back to me a little bit, look, that is okay if you do that as well, all right? All right, good. I was hoping for that in that moment. All right. All right, let's get into it. Okay, Titus chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Listen to what Paul writes to this young pastor that he was pouring into and calling him to and challenging him to build healthy churches. It says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior, to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace, 
and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Look, when asking the question, look, do you know the church? The first check I want to show you right here, write this down, church, is that we need to check the shape of doctrine. When asking the question, look, do you know the church? What is the church all about? You need to check the shape of doctrine. Now, here are the two questions that I want you to ask when you're thinking about and checking the shape of the doctrine in a church. The first question is, where is that doctrine grounded? And the second question is, what is that doctrine producing? Look, where is that doctrine actually grounded? What is that church actually built upon? And then what is that doctrine actually producing? Because it is producing something. Look, I I say like this all the time around here. A rich theology leads to faith-filled, practical living that actually makes a difference. Look, what it is that you believe about God is the most important thing about you. And what it is a church actually believes about God is the most important thing about that church. Look again at what Paul says here in these first four verses as to what good, grounded doctrine should actually look like. He says in verse 1, he says, I'm, look, I'm Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth with, with which accords with godliness. He says, this is the hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, has promised before the ages began. And look, we could probably spend several weeks just going through the, the rich theology, the rich doctrine that, that Paul's actually reminding Titus of. But I just want to highlight a couple of things here as to what that good doctrine actually looks like. First, like Paul shows Titus here that that good doctrine is actually a church that's built on gospel truth. Look, he says, God never lies. And that is the truth from the word of God. Never does God lie. He can always be trusted in every season. Man, that is truth from his word. That is truth of the gospel. God, our Savior, God, the Father, and God, our Savior, Christ Jesus, our Lord, Paul says right here. And even right from the beginning, he's reminding Titus of this good gospel truth as to which a church should be built on. But then he also mentions the elect. He mentions this word election here. And look, a simple way like to think about who the elect are is the fact that God is the one who does the saving. Look, we don't save ourselves. We didn't do anything to earn salvation. There's nothing that we could have done to save ourselves. But it's all because of God's good pleasure. It's all because of God's calling and drawing that people have actually saved. It is God who has made a way. Look, we just finished our entire series on 1 John, and pretty much all throughout this series, one of the things that we kept repeating is that God is self-sustaining, which means that he does not need anything or even anyone in creation to be fulfilled. Like God was perfectly happy, perfectly fulfilled within the unity of the Trinity, God doesn't need creation or any of his created beings to actually continue to live or to be sustained or to be fulfilled. In fact, I really need you to help me to to teach this to somebody who's sitting next to you. I want you to turn to the person sitting next to you. I want you to remind them of this, okay? I want you to tell them, look, God don't need you, all right? Now slap them and say a little bit stronger, okay? Say, God don't need you. 
Now turn to the neighbor who is your second choice and tell him, but he chose you. Look, church, God doesn't need us, but he wants us. Look, God doesn't need us, but he chose us. And Paul, right from the beginning, is reminding Titus to remind the church, look, we build the church on this declaration and this this proclamation that God has chosen us, that he's called us by name, that he is the one who's provided a way. But Paul also reminds Titus that a church, a healthy church, is built on the doctrine of the preaching of God's word. Look, Paul says, I've been entrusted and even commanded to preach. Look, this is a proclamation of God's word, this commanding to preach, and how Paul has been entrusted to preach. Like, this is the declaration and the proclamation of God's word. Look, when you are checking a church, you need to ask the question, look, does that church actually preach the word of God? Um, several years ago, I was in seminary. You know, sometimes when you get a little bit older, you say several years ago, but at this point, it's been almost 20 years uh, since I was in seminary. So 20 years ago, I was in Lynchburg, Virginia, going to Liberty University. And just like many of you, um, at least at one time, I was searching for a church to go to. And just like we ask you to do here, um, we ask you to, to come to the church, uh, to worship together, join a small group, find a place to serve, build community, build God's, God's kingdom where you're part of the church. I was trying to do the same thing. I was in seminary about 20 years ago. I remember there's one church that so many people told me, look, I need, you need to go and check out this church. So I went to this church and the building was cool. Man, the music was cool. Even the pastor's shirt was cooler than mine as well. And as the pastor got up to do his message, not one time did he point to the word of God. Not one time did he tell us to turn into our Bibles, digital or analog. They didn't even have the digital Bibles back then. Not one time did he point to scripture, expand on God's word, have us turn there and see it ourselves. Not one time did he do that. In fact, his message, I remember, was kind of all about feeling good. And let me just say, church, I did not feel good. Because a gospel-shaped church is one that proclaims and preaches the word of God. Look, God's word is infallible. It is inerrant. Look, it is sufficient. It is profitable for teaching and correcting and training in righteousness. Every one of us may be thoroughly equipped for every single good work. Look, even when the grass withers and the flowers fade, the word of God will never pass away. It never returns void. And I hope you know that this church right here, it is built upon the preaching and the teaching of God's word. Look, we are committed to be grounded in, to expound upon, to teach from God's word. And look, if you ever start to hear something different coming from this pulpit or any one of our coastal campuses, look, I give you permission to release a bunch of feral cats in that place and drive people away. Look, we will always be committed to teaching God's word. It's not about our opinion or popular opinion, but what it is that God himself has declared. Look, a good church is founded on the doctrine of preaching God's word. 
So we need to check the shape of doctrine and actually ask the question, what is that church founded on? But Paul also highlights here what that good doctrine should actually produce. Again, he says here, and look, look back at verses 1 through 4, okay? If you have your Bible, look back at that again. Paul says, look, he's a servant of God. And look, this good doctrine should be producing servants of God. In fact, that word there, servant, in the original language is the word bond servants. It's someone who actually willingly sells himself into slavery for a master. And Paul was saying, you know what? At the end of the day, I am all sold out to every single thing that God's calling me to do. And if you have good doctrine in a church, it should be producing people who say, you know what? I am all sold out to what it is that God has said and what it is he's calling me to do. Paul says, look, this accords with godliness. Churches are reminded that holiness and righteousness still matter today. Man, do you see this being produced in your life? Do you see holiness and righteousness, this godliness being produced and growing in your life? He talks about how we need to follow the command of God. And again, obeying God's word, obeying his calling matters today. And then he says, the grace and peace, the grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. And even right here, he's reminding Titus that what this good doctrine should produce is grace and peace in the life of the believer. Look, that word grace right there is God's unmerited favor. And it's a reminder, look, that we didn't do anything to earn our salvation. We didn't do anything to earn that salvation, but God has provided a way. He's poured out his unmerited favor on us. So again, even right now, in your life, in your relationships, in your home, is there evidence of grace? Is there truth and grace being produced in your life? And Paul talks about peace. Now, this was a common greeting of Paul. Like if you read some of his other New Testament later, he often said, hey, grace, the grace of our God and Father and the peace of our God and Father be with you. But man, that word peace was something that our Jewish brothers and sisters would often say. They would say shalom. And simply that means peace. But it wasn't just peace in the sense of the absence of conflict. It was peace in the sense that wherever you went, you were bringing God's presence. Because it's God's presence that can make a difference in the lives of people. And just like Pastor Brian said a few weeks ago, look, is there evidence of grace and peace in your life? Can someone actually look at your life and see that grace and peace are evident that is actually being produced in your life? Then as I was looking at this this week, man, I saw something else, okay? As Paul is going through these things and he's, he's reminding Titus of these important doctrines to what the church is built upon and what it actually produces. I believe right here that one of the things that, that Paul was teaching Titus to remind the church is that in Christ, there is purpose. Look, we are not just learning doctrines. We are not just pontificating about election and predestination. We are finding purpose and we're helping others do the same. Look, part of why we're here is to be servants of God. Part of why we're actually living this life on earth is to pursue godliness, holiness, and righteousness. Part of why we're here is to have and to cling to this hope of eternal life, this assurance of eternal life, so that you may know you have eternal life. Like, we don't hope for eternal life. Like, oh, man, I hope it's going to happen one day. But we cling to it because Jesus has said when he comes back, 
or calls us home, if we are in relationship with him, we get to be with him for eternity. Man, there is purpose in following God's command. There is purpose in bringing grace and peace into every environment. There is so much purpose here that good doctrine should produce in the life of the believer that Paul is reminding Titus of here and that I'm reminding you of today. In fact, I want to remind you that today you are not here by mistake. Look, you are living in this time period. You are born in this time period for such a time as this. There is purpose and a reason why God has you right here, right now. Come on, teenager in the room, young adult in the room, single adult in the room. One of the reasons why you're here is to allow godliness to be produced in your life, is to cling to this hope of eternal life, is to become a servant of God, someone who's sold out for the things that God has called them to do and that he challenges them to do. It's to bring grace and peace into your classroom, into your workplace, into your relationships. Come on, um, elderly, 85 adult, year old adult in the room. Part of the reason why you're here is for God to continue to produce this godliness in your life, to bring grace and peace in you and through you, to, the, to affect the environments that you're actually in. Part of the reason why you're actually here is to be still sold out to all the things of God. In fact, I love how scripture says that David served his generation and then he died. And it's the same thing as long as God has you here, as long as there's breath in our lungs that we just sung about, man, God has a purpose and a calling for you. And right here, Paul talks about how that good doctrine should be producing these things. But I also love how right here as Paul is talking about the purpose and the reason why he's challenging Titus and challenging these churches. Here it is again. Here is Paul, who's the older, pouring into Titus, who is younger. And I love the multi-generationalness of the kingdom of God. The older pouring into the younger. And again, church, this is what I want our church to be. One where every age and stage is being developed as an authentic follower of Jesus Christ. Man, this is what God has called us to do. Now, second thing I want to give you today, to check the shape of the church. If you're really going to know the church, you also need to check the shape of the leadership. Not only do you need to check the shape of the doctrine, but you also need to check the shape of the leadership. Now, before you go and say, Andrew, look, I've checked your shape, and it's obvious that you need to get into shape, okay? It's not the type of shape I'm talking about. But you need to check the actual shape, the character of the leadership. Listen to again what Paul says here in verse 5. He says, this is why, Titus, I left you in Crete. And again, can't you just hear the purpose that Paul is trying to pour into Titus? He said, look, there is a why behind the what. He said, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, 
holy, and disciplined. He must not hold firm or he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. You ready for the two questions? When you're checking the leadership of the church, here are the two questions you need to ask. Is the leadership pursuing stewardship or the stage? Look, is the leadership trying to build their own platform or their own prominence? Are they actually stewarding what it is that God has given them and allowed them to have? Are they stewarding that well? And the second question is, is the leadership passionate about multiplication? Is the leadership actually passionate about multiplying what God has done in them and through them? And do they want to actually see their own kingdom built? Or do they want to see the kingdom of God built? Again, just listen to, listen to how Paul is challenging Titus as he's looking to multiply the leadership for this church. Listen to what he said you should look for for the qualifications of a leader of these churches. He says, look, you are to appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, again, that means that they have integrity. The husband of one wife and his children are believers. And this is, again, someone who's actually committed to his family, committed to his one wife, uh, committed to his children, committed to actually raising his family. In fact, I'm going to talk about this just a little bit more in just a second. But many of you guys have seen us ordain a couple pastors right here on this stage. And one of the things that we challenge pastors with that they're being ordained, we say, look, you need to fulfill the ministry with your family. Because if you lose your family, you actually lose your ministry. Your first ministry is to your family. He says that these overseers, these elders are are not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, which means, look, they are not led astray by sin. Sin is not the Lord of them. Jesus is the Lord of them. For an overseer is God's steward, and they are to be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain but instead needs to be hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, again, preaching the word of God, and he may be able, so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and rebuke those who actually contradict it. And then in 1 Timothy chapter 3, again, Paul echoes these same words to another pastor that he had been pouring into who was trying to set up these healthy churches. And Paul says this in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. He says, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to be in the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil." Now, there's a couple of points of clarification on this, okay? A couple of things I, I want to point out about this. 
First of all, we here as a church, we believe in godly male leadership in the church and also in the family. And again, I've taught on this before, but Jesus himself and church leaders in the first century, no matter maybe what you've heard in culture about what the church believes about women, is that Jesus himself and leaders in the first century actually elevated women in the first century. In fact, in the first century, most rabbis did not have any women as disciples, but Jesus actually had women as disciples following him. In fact, it was even the Apostle Paul who, who challenged the church leaders to actually to let women learn alongside the men. Because in the first century, in Roman culture, women weren't even allowed to be educated. In fact, in Roman culture, oftentimes women were either viewed as property or purely sex objects in the first century. But Jesus and the Gospels and the Bible elevated the status of women. In fact, it's the word of God that even says that, that women, men and women are co-heirs with Christ, which means that every single benefit, every single blessing that God wants to give those who are followers of his are for both men and women. They are co-heirs with Christ. But we also do believe, like looking at this passage right here, that there are distinct roles for both men and women to fulfill what it is that God has called them to do. And so again, we aren't saying that women can't be presidents or CEOs or captains or admirals or generals. Okay, in fact, go for it, boss lady. But again, what we're saying is that there are distinct roles that God has given to men and women to fulfill building his kingdom. And one of those distinctions is the role of overseer, elder, and pastor. In fact, we believe from the language of these passages that that role is reserved for godly men. Now, notice I said here, godly men. In fact, have you ever noticed, if you've ever read either one of these lists before, in this list, like Paul challenges Timothy, and he also challenges Titus to be men of character, to ordain men of character, In fact, almost all these lists, when it comes to the leadership involved, it's not leadership based primarily on performance, but it's leadership primarily based on character. You know, sometimes pastors really do get it twisted. And church, I'm about to maybe admit some things to you that maybe you may never come back to this church, okay? Uh, One of the things, like with the stage, like there is a temptation that comes with the stage. In fact, every single Sunday... And when I say every single Sunday, I mean every single Sunday. Oftentimes when I'm on my way here, there is this, there, there are these floods of thoughts and emotions that are rolling through my mind. Everything from some selfishness, everything from some anxiety and worry, thinking that this is all about me. That if I don't preach this right, if I don't nail that joke just right, if I don't teach the word of God just right, that people aren't going to get saved. They're never going to come back to the church. And some of that may even be true. And let me just say, look, we do actually take the word of God here very seriously. Look, we pray and we prepare because we believe that there is power in teaching the word of God every single week. But as all those thoughts and emotions um, run through my mind, I'm often reminded in those moments that it is not about me. And when I'm feeling anxiousness or worriedness, I am trying to make it all about me. I'm trying to say, look, it's all dependent on me, but really it's not. I know for a fact that I cannot change anyone. I know for a fact that I cannot save 
anyone. In fact, a lot of times on Sunday mornings, one of the verses that often comes to mind, I believe God just brings it to mind every single week, is found in John chapter 3. And this was a moment where John the Baptist, some of his followers came to him and said to him this in John chapter 3, verse 26. And they came to him, John the Baptist's followers came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he, talking about Jesus, who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. In other words, John, don't you see that all these people are now following Jesus instead of you? Don't you see that his ministry is increasing and yours is decreasing? And I love John's reply in verse 30. He says, he, Jesus, must increase and I must decrease. Church, I want to decrease, and I want Christ to increase. I want to decrease, and I want Christ to increase for you and also for me. Look, I don't want to build this church on my name because, again, who in the world is Andrew Segree? I don't want any buildings named after me. I don't want any platforms built for me. In fact, I'm a nobody trying to tell everybody about a somebody who can actually make a difference in your life. Look, you need to check the church. Does the leadership want the stage more than to steward what it is that God has given them and is allowing them to have? We need to check the church and see how it is that God's leading rather than trying to promote our own platform. But we also need to ask the question, okay, is the leadership passionate about multiplication? Look, again, you hear it every single week. Coastal Church exists to develop authentic followers of Jesus Christ. We do that as we connect to God in corporate worship, as we grow in community through small groups, as we serve in ministry and a mission, and as we multiply. And see, we multiply by making disciples for the advancement of the gospel. Again, not for the advancement of my own name, but for the advancement of the name and fame of Jesus Christ. Again, this church is not built on Pastor Sean Brown or Pastor Brian Howe or Pastor Scott DeShong. It's not built on any of those people. It is built on Jesus and people becoming authentic followers of his. And church, that is what we want to multiply. We want to multiply authentic followers. We want to build healthy churches that make disciples. We also want to multiply leadership that helps make disciples. In fact, right now, our campus is in the process of praying and looking for some campus elders to be able to help continue to shepherd this congregation. And we're doing that because Paul even challenged Titus that you would appoint elders to be able to help keep this sound doctrine, to help keep this good character that God has called us to. So we're in the process of doing that because we want to multiply our leadership. But I also want to challenge you to do the same that you will multiply what God has done in you and through you. Church, what God has done for you is not just for you. Look, you're to share that with someone else. So the question I often ask you is, look, who's your one? Who's the one that you're inviting into a relationship with Jesus? You got to know the gospel and share the gospel. Who's the one that you're actually pouring into to make a disciple of Jesus? Is the church actually passionate about multiplying disciples? And then the last check to check the shape of the church. Number three, write this down. You need to check how the church shapes culture. 
when looking at a church, you need to see how the church actually shapes culture. Look, at, are you ready for the two questions? Here they are, okay? Number one, does the church promote gospel-shaped unity? And does the church choose Christ over culture? Look, when it comes to unity within the church, is the church actually building and looking at that from the gospel perspective, from the gospel truth? And does the church actually choose Christ over culture? Now, here's the last few verses here in this first chapter of Titus. And as I read it, it's going to seem like Paul almost takes this turn in what he's telling Titus. Listen to what he says here. He says, for there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. He says they must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciousness are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. He says they are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. Okay. Two quick things about this. First of all, look back at verse 10. Paul talks about the circumcision party. Now, it's not the type of party that you're thinking about, okay? And if you have kids, if kids, if you're in the room, if you want want, want to know more about what that's about, hey, ask your parents as well, okay? I'm not going to expand any more on that. But anytime the scriptures reference those of the circumcision, it's talking about those who are either ethnically Jewish or those who are of the Jewish faith. In fact, this was a sign of the covenant that people were going to raise their kids to follow God's ways, God's will, God's law. So he's talking about those who are ethnically Jewish and of the Jewish faith. And what he's saying here, there were things from culturally Jewish people that were coming into the church that was against what God had taught. In fact, many times, like some Jewish believers, even after trusting Christ, they were trying to tell their Gentile brothers and sisters, those of uh, Greek origin, that they had to, in essence, become Jewish people first before they could truly follow Jesus. And Paul's saying, look, that is against what God has taught in the gospel, and you need to rebuke that. But then Paul talks about the Cretans. He addresses the Cretans, And again, remember, like this is being written as Titus is establishing these churches on Crete, on these Greek islands. So this is a Greek area full of people of Cretan descent. And he calls them this. He says, the Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. And he says, this testimony is true. Now, Paul is actually quoting here a Greek poet, a Cretan poet by the name of Epimenides. I can't say it right. Epimenides. Epimenides, Epididymus, I don't know what his name is, but he was a well-known like Greek philosopher. And in fact, Aristotle quoted this guy. So many people quoted this guy. And look, I know anytime you paint a culture 
or group of people with a broad brush, you need to be careful. But Paul was saying, look, these were identifiers of that culture in Crete. And in essence, what he's saying here is that when your culture, when you come to Christ, you don't submit Christ to your culture. You submit your culture to Christ. Look, if there's something that even if you believe that your entire life, man, you've grown up with it, it's been passed down from generation to generation. If it is against the word of God, you don't throw out the word of God. You throw out that thing in culture. And I also love here how Paul's pointing to the fact that this church in Crete had both Cretan people in it and it had Jewish people in it. Again, he's pointing to the fact that this multi-ethnic church is one that, again, we don't follow our culture, we follow Christ. So this church that was multi-ethnic had this Christ and needed to have this Christ-shaped unity through the gospel. Not through culture, but through the gospel. And again, church, that is what I want to see here at this church. That we will be a multi-ethnic church, one that actually finds unity, again, not through any laws or regulations in culture, but through the gospel. What Jesus prayed for, what he's challenged his church to be. This is who we are called to be. Look, the Cretans were promoting laziness and lying and gluttony. Paul says that's not the way of God. Look, the Jewish people are saying, look, you need to go follow all these laws and regulations before you come to know Christ. That is not the way of God. You need to submit that culture to Christ because he still is the only way. The narrow way is the only way. And look, as our worship team comes back up to the stage, and I know sometimes like when we're setting up a serious church, I might give you a little more information um, than maybe I usually do, but I want you to hear this, okay? This is a church that will not be built on platforms or names or prominence. It will be built on the gospel. It will be built on the preaching and teaching of God's word. It will be built on the name and fame of Jesus Christ. Again, we don't want to develop authentic followers of Pastor Andrew Segree, but we want to develop authentic followers of Jesus. So for as long as God has you here, or when he moves you to somewhere else, you need to check the condition of that church. And what is their doctrine actually built upon? Is it built on the name of some guy? Or is it built on Christ and his word? You need to actually check the shape of that leadership. Again, are they men and women leading that church of character? And then you actually need to check how they shape culture. Look, is that church submitting and bending to culture? Or are they submitting and bending to Christ? Let's pray together. Father God, again, I thank you, Lord, for your word. God, and I thank you, Lord, for the reminder of this gospel truth. And God, I know that a rich theology leads to faith-filled, practical living that actually makes a difference. And God, that rich theology is founded in the gospel, that Jesus is God. He died on the cross to pay the price for our sins. And he bodily rose from the dead, conquering sin, conquering death, conquering the grave, making a way for us. God, we have this hope of eternal life that isn't just out there somewhere, but Lord, we cling to it and we believe in it. 
God, I pray that that hope will produce something so good in us. Again, a faith-filled life that actually makes a difference. God, well, we are sold out to you. We're sold out to follow the things that you've said, sold out to your word. God, it is producing godliness and grace and peace in our lives. But God, I pray that we would be a church, Lord, that we don't, again, conform to culture, but we're conforming to you. God, make us into your image. God, draw us close to you. Lord, we want to be like you. God, we want to be the church that is everything that you said it could be, that it should be. In Jesus' name, amen.